It is great to be here. And I know 24 of you, I call you friends. Some of you are even Facebook friends. I think I'm the oldest guy other than Harry here that's on Facebook. <laughs> but the 24 of you that I know is because we went on the tour of Israel that Dr. Fletcher led earlier this year. And of course, it's a life-changing experience. And uh, I hope, you're, hope you're, some of you will be going on this tour this coming June as well. Um, you may have come today. Well, first of all, I want to get a shout out to my best friend, fellow retired Navy captain, squadron mate of mine in the squadron, and uh, the dearest of friends, Alan Morell. He and his wife, Patty, would you stand up just for a second, Alan? I know you're here. You didn't run out on me. There you are. <laughs> Patty, Patty, come on. Alan and Patty, there's no other way to say it. They are missionaries to Sierra Leone doing wonderful works for the young people there. Education, medical, the rest. So, great example to me. Um, you may be thinking, since you've got a veteran up here, you're going to be hearing war stories and harrowing tales and everything like that. Sorry to disappoint you. Every one of those people that you saw, saw that are members here that have served can tell harrowing stories. We all can. It's the nature of the military. That's the way it is. It's dangerous. So, but that's not why we're here this morning. We're here to thank our vets, certainly. We're here to honor our vets. We're here even maybe to admire our vets. But we aren't here to worship or idolize our vets. That's reserved for the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to honor the vets in the context of glorifying the Lord and exalting his word this morning for the next few minutes. Now, you want me to take my watch off and put it on here? You know what that means when a preacher takes his watch off and puts it here? It means nothing. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> You also won't be hearing about any successes I've had today other than in the context of how the Lord taught me a lesson through the su successes. On the contrary, you're going to hear about some of the failures I've had as a military man, as a military husband, as a military father. Because if someone, some wise person once said, the second way, best way to be a success is to learn from your mistakes. The best way is to learn from others' mistakes. <laughs> so you're going to have an opportunity to hear some of my mistakes then, and hopefully you'll, you'll learn from them as well. To begin with, Somebody's already mentioned it. When you join the military, you know that you're given the government a blank check. And you've heard this before, that they can cash whatever they want all the way up to and including your life. If you, want, if, you don't, if you don't want to offer that, then don't join the military. May I please have slide one? What you see up here are those many that have offered the ultimate sacrifice. Greater love, Pastor already mentioned this morning, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And uh, that's exactly right. Now, You'll notice that, by the way, Civil War isn't up here. Civil War, we lost more men, I presume some women also, but more people than any other war. We lost 620,000 men and women in the Civil War. Now, you notice as you go down here into more recent times, there are less deaths than there were back in those days for a couple of reasons. First of all, combat now is different than it was back then. Now it's a lot of standoff things, a lot of missiles, things like that, as opposed to hand-to-hand -hand stuff. Most, uh, probably the most recent time we've done a lot of the hand-to-hand -hand stuff is in Vietnam where you know, Jerry, Rick, and others have served here. But since that time, it's been mostly weapons. You've you got some attacks in Fallujah and things like that with hand-to-hand, -hand, but generally, it's a standoff type of way we fight war. So the, so the uh, deaths are less. Also, the, the other thing is the medical technology on the field is much better than it was. So that, that's another reason. And I haven't put up here the wounded people, but it's by a factor of many are wounded in, in, in addition to being dead. So, so how, do you, how do you visualize this? Well, here's how I do it. If you've ever been to Fenway Park, you look around you, there's a mass of humanity, lower deck, upper deck, all around you. That's 57,000 people. So you take the Civil War, you could put 19 Fenway Parks next to each other, 
that filled up with the people that died. Help you understand exactly what the depth and breadth of that is. Uh, next slide, please. This slide shows us the leadership in the country and how we're becoming less and less experienced as a vets. You'll see that although 20, uh, nine of the last 12 presidents have been vets, those three that have not been vets are of the last four presidents. Our last four presidents, only one has served in the military. But you look back over, over time in the past, and most had. In, 2000, in 1971, 73 members of Congress, you can see, were veterans. In 2019, 18% are veterans. This is not an indictment at all. It's just a fact that you need to understand that the people in leadership, less of them are veterans than have been in the past, and it seems, the trend seems to be decreasing. Slide three, please. This is a sad slide to me. This deals with, the, as you can see, 22 veterans per day die from suicide. One active duty veteran, not one active duty person per day dies from suicide. Beyond that, you get on to PTSD. You know, Rick has referred to nightmares and things like that. It's not only people that have fought in hand-to-hand -hand combat that have PTSD. It's anybody that's had a traumatic experience. For example, my son has PTSD. He, he, he never faced the enemy face-to-face, -face, but he fired missiles off a ship. So if you're firing missiles, cruise missiles, and other things off a ship, that's pretty traumatic. And like Rick alluded, he has nightmares. My son has nightmares, too. So PTSD is something that finally the, the government is starting to deal with on a serious basis, because it's a serious problem. My thunder's already been stolen. This is Isaiah 2.4. This statue was a statue given to the United Nations by Russia in 1959. Now, can you imagine that? An atheist nation giving a statue that quotes Isaiah on the statue? Hi, Janet. I didn't get a chance to say hello to you before I got here. Yeah. I saw you out there. You know, you actually see people when you stand up here talking. Anyway, uh, it was a gift from the UN, and the, the, the title is Let Us Beat Our Swords into Plowshares. Now, ostensibly, this uh, symbolizes man's desire to end war. And, of course, the, 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 uh, the sword is a tool of destruction, and the plowshare is a, of, a tool of creativity, ostensibly. So that's, that's, that statue exists, stands today in the United Nations. Now, social and political groups in recent years have advocated the dismantling of nuclear weapons facilities and turning them into nuclear power plants. Joan Baez, for those of you with any gray hair out here, a singer and political activist years ago, advocated unilateral disarmament. Her feeling was that civilized nations will respond to that in a similar fashion. Now, Joan, come on now. <laughs> Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Iran, North Korea. Hi, Jen, I didn't say hello to you either. <laughs> these, are, these are my Israeli friends that I'm just picking out now. Are you kidding? You think they're gonna give up their weapons just because we do as a goodwill gesture? Now, this is, it's really fairy tale thinking. Now, I'm going to punish you here for a minute, okay? John Lennon uh, made a song called Imagine. Uh, it's, it's not the current Christian song, you know, I can only imagine. You know that one. This is one John Lennon did. And again, only the gray hairs will understand this. Now, here's why I'm going to punish you. I'm going to sing a couple lines from it. Because I want to talk to the words that he says there. And you won't remember it unless you get the tune anyway. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. Remember that song? John, you're kidding me. You think no heaven is something we ought to be wishing for and hoping for? No heaven, no hell? You think we can all live in peace? By the way, you're not the only one. You're right. But John, you're not a dreamer. You're a fool. 
Because the message of the Bible, the message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. And for you to say there's no heaven, which Christ is the only way to get to heaven, then that's the message of the cross, and it's foolishness to you. You're perishing, John. Well, I, I, can't, I can't x-ray somebody's heart, but, but all I know is John Baez, Joan Baez and John Lennon wouldn't acknowledge that some men and women are evil in this world. And the message of the cross is foolishness, but in fact their views are foolishness. First of all, text without context is a pretext. You've probably heard that phrase before. Text without context is a pretext. This statue that you're looking at was from Isaiah 2.4, the verse. This had to do with the prophet Isaiah speaking about the period after Christ's return, after he's reigning, after he returns. Not in this fallen world that we're in right now, with our fallen civilizations and leaders. Warfare and violence are not normal. They're not normal except in a fallen world. And we live in a fallen world. Sin is in our world. So the context he's talking about is after Christ comes back. They don't understand. These singers would never understand that we live in a world fallen because of sin. You can remove slide four. Slide four. For those of you that know a little bit about the Bible, Ecclesiastes is a book of the Bible. And Ecclesiastes was attributed by most scholars to Solomon as being the author who's arguably the wisest man that ever lived on earth. It describes, Ecclesiastes describes life in our fallen world. And among other things, it says there's a time for war and a time for peace. So again, some of you may have been examining the Bible, look at the book of Joshua. You may be troubled, all the violence that's in, in Joshua. And warfare was prominent in that account, no doubt about it. But it describes the establishment of Israel in the promised land. Um, I'm not here to argue the ethics of war, because first of all, I'm not competent to do that. But the war in this context, this war must be viewed as part of God's redemptive plan not to achieve human goals, okay? The one true and living God who's claiming the whole world is absolute, and the Israelites were to reclaim one portion of that land from a depraved and wicked people who not only defended their claim by force of arms, but they were reliant on false gods. That was the purpose. It's God's, part of God's redemptive plans. Hence, war was necessary. The important thing to remember that the battles for Canaan were therefore the Lord's holy war. I hate to use that phrase because it conjures up in some people's minds radical Islamists, but it was a holy war. It was the Lord's holy war at a particular period of time in his redemptive plan. Furthermore, it was a particular limited mission. He did not give the Israelites blanket authority to conquer the world with a sword. It was a limited mission. There will always be wars until the Prince of Peace returns to make everything right and set everything anew. There will always be wars. In the Gospel of Matthew, you might remember, Jesus was responding to his disciples who said, when are you going to come back? When you leave us, when are you going to return? And among other things, he said, wars and rumors of wars have to happen before I'll return. So if we're going to have wars until Christ returns, that tells us we will never be free from war. I saw a report recently where right now, 55 wars are going on in the world right now. 55 wars of different size and everything else. There will always be wars in a fallen world. Okay, so if there are always going to be wars, why do we even bother pursuing peace? Well, let me give you an analogy. Do you remember in the Gospel of Matthew when uh, Judas was berating the woman who had poured perfume on Christ's head and said, why'd you do that? We could have sold that, in my words. You could have sold that, and we could have given money to the poor. Well, Judas was not interested in giving money to the poor. He was, that was an opportunity cost for him. He wouldn't be able to skim any of the money after they sold it. So Jesus said, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have, but you will not always have me. 
What does that tell us? It tells us that we'll always be poor people. We won't solve poverty. Does that mean we shouldn't do anything about it? Uh, Quite the contrary. Proverbs says, whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. Our prayers are going to be hindered if we ignore the poor. That's the bottom line. So even though poverty will always be here, we can't ignore poverty. That's why Al and Patty, that's what they do. They're responding to the cries of the poor. So similarly, even though there will always be war, we must pursue peace. Only to go to wars that are just and necessary to ultimately preserve his agenda and preserve our freedom to worship him freely. Those are the kind of wars we need to pursue. So during the Cold War and other times when we aren't in a hot war, many of the people ask, why are we spending all this money on the budget on the military? It just seems like such a waste. Well, it's all about training and preparation. Psalm 144, David says, Praise be the Lord my rock for training my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Praise be the Lord my rock for training my hands for battle and my fingers for war. Hands for war, fingers for battle. The guy who won the 1989 uh, uh, New York City Marathon, Tanzanian man, uh, was interviewed afterward because he'd broken records and all that kind of stuff. In the interview, he said, boy, you must have really wanted to win this in order to break that record and do this. He said, you know what? The will to win means nothing without the will to prepare. So just like a fine athlete in strict training, we have to be prepared all the time uh, with, through peacetime exercise and equipment, things like that, to be ready to go to war if we have to. Many years later, after the wars to conquer Canaan, which I talked about a few minutes ago, during the period of the Judges, there's a book in the Bible called The Judges, and, and it's during the period of the Judges, when the Judges were ruling, for that a king, the Lord had allowed nations to conquer, oppress, and attack the Israelites because the Israelites had been disobedient. They were, no, they were worshiping and following other gods. So our Lord allowed them to be under, uh, under, under oppressed. But he, he's a gracious God. He didn't leave them defenseless. And here's what Judges 3, 2 says. I'll read it to you. These are, the nations of the Lord, these are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not, previous, who had, not had previous battle experience. Teach warfare. The Lord enabled them to teach warfare. So warfare is not something going to go away. I don't care how much you wish it away, Joan and John. It's, it, the peace is not going to be here. Worldly peace the way you envision. But as Christians, you knew it was coming. We got another type of war that we experience, and we're going to continue to experience until we come face to face with the Lord or He returns. And that's spiritual warfare, not physical warfare. Spiritual warfare, the book of Ephesians talks about it extensively, about putting on spiritual armor, such as the, uh, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, things like that. It's spiritual, it's not physical. Our Lord, detail, our Lord Jesus detailed that spiritual warfare when he said in the Gospel of Matthew, Do not suppose that I come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother. Now, in another, one of the other Gospels, he said, I, 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 to, I, I did not come to bring peace, but division. So in one Gospel, he says, I came to bring a sword. Another says, brings me divisions. What's that? I thought you were the Prince of Peace. Well, those of us who are followers of Christ know that we've lost friends because the friends are uncomfortable around us. Maybe we were obnoxious, maybe we aren't winsome, but maybe they just reject the gospel and don't want to be around us because they know that we love the Lord Jesus. Closer to home, we have many godly friends whose children, the one Jesus referred to, father, mother, and, and, and children, are separated. Reed and I are in a, a small group, we call it a small group, you have small groups I think here too, with seven couples. We meet every week, 
in one of our houses and stuff, and dig deep into one another's life, prayer, prayerfully and otherwise. You know, we, we, really, we really dig into one another's lives. Of those seven couples, five have kids that have rejected the truth. Five couples. Several of the couples have children that they're estranged from. They don't even contact them or talk to them anymore. These are godly men and women whose kids have made their own decisions. That's what Jesus is talking about. Some are going to be separated from you. The gospel unites believers but divides believers from unbelievers in varying degrees. We also have our personal spiritual warfare. I just talked about spiritual warfare dealing with others, including those even within our family. We also have our own personal spiritual warfare. Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, that is, you're foreigners and exiles in this world because your real home is heaven, you're as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Not only our battles with others, but ourselves. I'll talk more about that in a moment, individual warfare. So how about peace? You know, you've talked about regular warfare, you've talked about, you know, physical, physical peace, you've talked about spiritual warfare. How about, how about peace? Well, the Bible mentions peace 420 times throughout the Bible. You know, you've heard a lot, of, you know, you, you, can, you can say a lot of those yourself, you know, uh, peace on earth, goodwill toward man, etc., etc. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Remember, remember when Paul said, Prince of Pe- the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Peace is throughout, but it's a different kind of peace. And perhaps my own personal journey will share that type of peace that Jesus is talking about. Born in Ohio, grew up, went to church occasionally, never remembered hearing the gospel in church. Applied to the Naval Academy, was first one. From, I, remember I told you I'm going to tell you many successes, unless it has a principle? Well, I'm going to tell you about a couple successes here because there's a, there's a bottom that falls out of, okay? The, the Lord's lesson, if you will. I was driven, even as a boy in high school, I was driven in an inappropriate way. Uh, driven to excel, driven to be number one, driven to be the best at everything I did. So I was the first kid from my town to ever get an appointment to the academy. While at the academy, I was continued to be driven to achieve. As a battalion commander, I graduated with honors. I had John McCain, not the one the POW, but his father, who was an admiral on active duty while John was POW, personally give me his, my certificate my graduation certificate. The only, the only setback I had was on one of my cruises at sea at night, I fell off a ship in the ocean. That's, a, that's another story over a cup of coffee. I can't get into that today. <laughs> then I met Rita while I was at the academy. That's another cup of coffee story, by the way, which I'll tell you sometime if we ever think. And we got married three days after graduation. Went to flight training, Pensacola, Florida. Remember, this is the guy that's driven. I'm going to be the chief of naval operations. That's my goal. Chief of naval operations is the number one man in the Navy. I'm going to be the chief of naval operations. Went to flight training, finished first in my class, of course. I selected ASW anti-submarine warfare helicopters, same as my brother Alan back there. We were the same squadron together. Anti-submarine warfare helicopters are big helicopters that fly off of aircraft carriers, cruisers, destroyers, with various sensors and various weapons to detect and then destroy as necessary submarines under the water in the ocean. Really kind of a cool, cool mission field. But we're going out on six months deployments. You know, my first squadron, I went out on six month deployment. In those days, no phone or anything. So you'd get to Barcelona, Spain. You'd wait 20 in line to get to a public phone to talk to my wife for three minutes. You see, the military, sometimes we think of the military in terms of being sacrificed and all that kind of stuff. If you're going to combat, you look at Rick or Jerry who are in combat in Vietnam, some others I'm sure have also. But it's more than that. Any military is sacrificial. I mean, can you imagine being away from your wife or husband for six months when you've got little kids? You come back, they're, they're not the same. 
They're not the same. You know, your, your wife's been running everything, and then you come back and say, okay, now we're going to do this. She says, no, we're not doing anything. I've been running this family for six months. <laughs> it's, it's a stress on the marriage. It's a real stress on the marriage. Uh, so I'm going to recommend something. You know, this phrase, uh, thank you for your service, is very, very nice. But, you know, it's become almost trite in the sense that you can say thank you for your service to somebody working at IHOP or somebody working at Chick-fil-A. If, if you really want to thank a vet, say thank you for your service and your sacrifice. A vet will then recognize that you recognize he's had a, he or she has made a sacrifice. So it's more stress in marriage. Okay, remember, I, I have no interest in God at this point. None. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be chief of naval operations. I don't need God for that. I just need to continue crawling and wor- walking over everybody and continuing to excel. That's what I need. And then God started putting a couple of people in my path. There was a guy in my first squadron. Uh, his name was Chris. I won't tell you his last name. His name was Chris. And he was a, really a... a, a, a professional pilot and a professional officer and a winsome guy and he was a Christian everybody looked up to him but he was he was winsome you know sometimes you run across Christians you're just obnoxious you know you just you just want to get out of their presence Chris is not like that he was winsome he wanted to be in his presence so in first squadron I was flying H3s when you get aircraft designated aircraft commander the initiation for that is you get a big mug of beer and you drop your wings in it and you chug the beer and you catch the wings in your teeth and then you're officially an aircraft commander well, Chris didn't drink. And he said, well, you know, I don't drink. He said, you can put anything you want in there. Put Coca-Cola, put mayonnaise, put peanut butter, put whatever you want. I just don't drink. Can you imagine the razzing we gave him? I mean, as I look back on it, I was kind of like Saul and Stephen. Chris, you got to be kidding me. We're pilots, buddy. We're pilots. There's nothing wrong with you drinking a mug of beer. Well, I, I just don't drink alcohol. That made an impression on me. That was the first Christian guy that really made an impression on me. Not because he didn't drink because he wouldn't compromise his principles, even under all the stress of people trying to cause him to do that. So I did, when I was on the squadron, I did something that was, uh, that was good. So it was, you know, I got some notoriety. So the, my commanding officer dragged me up to the uh, commanding officer of the aircraft carrier, and I met him. And he became an admiral after that tour of the aircraft carrier. He, he asked if I would be his aide, which is the right-hand guy. I mean, I'm 26 years old, 26 years old. But remember, I'm driven. This is going to be a great stepping stone to be the chief of naval operation. I mean, nobody might, this young gets this kind of responsibility. Yes, I'll be his aide. So we went to Naples, Italy, which is where, where we, we was, he was responsible for all the ASW forces in the Mediterranean, including NATO commands. So we work 364 days a year. Of course you work Easter. You don't work Christmas, but of course you work Easter. Easter, nobody's going to be bugging you on the phone. We'll get a lot of stuff done. Well, we lived in an upstairs apartment out of town. And nobody spoke English around us. And Rita, it was really a stressful on a marriage. And of course, I'm just totally focused on my career. We, we would go out in the evenings after work, working to have various functions, you know, with dukes and duchesses and, and uh, barons and baronesses and all that kind of stuff, because it was a NATO command. Oftentimes, Rita, my wife, had to come with me. So, <clears throat> by the way, that admiral later <clears throat> became a Christian. And that's a coffee cup story, I'll tell you, when we get a chance. Anyway, enough for that for now. So I came home one night after being out somewhere, and Rita was in bed with a light on, reading the Bible. I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm reading the Bible. I said, what are you doing that for? She said, oh, I don't have a husband, and I need some comfort somewhere. All you care about is being the number one guy in the Navy. That's a failure. That's a failure. So we moved to San Diego. Before we moved to San Diego, there was a couple that came over to Naples, which is where we were, and they did a three-day marriage, it wasn't marriage enrichment, but it was, you know, it was marriage seminar. And Rita said, can, can we just please go to that seminar? I, said, yeah, I, thought, I thought in my heart, if you get off my back, I'll go to that seminary, okay? 
So I went to seminar. That was the next person that God put in my path to draw me to himself. There was some, the one night was on communication, one night was on religion, one night was on a physical relationship. But that couple had something that we didn't have, something I just couldn't put my finger on. Found out later, of course, they were Christians. But, so that was the second thing that came. So then we moved to San Diego, which is not too much after that. That's where we met Alan Patty. Moved to San Diego for our next squadron tour. So we're in a Navy hotel, which the Navy has a hotel right there on the base where people stay when they're looking for housing, you know, so they have a place to stay. So I came in one day, we came in one day, and I saw, um, saw Fred out there. I said, hey, Fred, uh, how did your house hunting trip go today? He said, oh, it, it went great. He said, I think, I think we found the house the Lord wants for us. I said to Rita, Rita, we've got to stay away from them. The Lord found them a house. Can you believe that? <laughs> Lord found them a house? Well, what did he do? He invited us to come to church with him next morning. I couldn't lie and say, well, we're busy. You know, we got a lot of things going on. We had nothing going on. Everybody in there was just looking for housing. So we came, went to church with them, and the Lord continued to put people in my path. Now, I believe that, from my experience, there's two camps of those that are not Christians. There's a camp of people over here who have felt needs. They have great needs, and they know the thing, they've done things, and things aren't working out very well. Those are the people that we minister to in jails and prisons, and through Good News, you know, prison ministry. Because they've tried a lot of things and they haven't worked. And they're more open to trying Christ. And as our founder used to say, uh, ministering the word God and, and sharing Jesus in a jail is like fishing in a stocked pond. You know? <laughs> the other group is over here, and these are people that have it all, they don't have any felt needs. You know, they're doing well, uh, unless they have a medical emergency or something. You know, they have, they have no interest in Christ until they see that there's something missing in their heart. You know what, what Pascal and others have said about that hole in your heart that only Christ can fill? Well, I was in this category. I mean, I was achieving. I was going up fast. Had a good family, had a good everything, but there was something, something missing. So, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth's not in us. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. I like the, I like the NIV version, which says, purify us. I mean, you can clean a garage floor, but purify has a stronger meaning to me than cleanse. Purify us from all unrighteousness. So, so um, I trusted Christ in myself, in my bedroom, by myself. There's nobody on this earth that can say, I prayed with Don Patterson to become a Christian. They didn't. But there were people in my path along the way that drew me. Here's the lesson. None of, none of us are going to be Harry Fletcher, where you get on the airplane and two people next to you sitting there, you come to Christ. Or, you go, or, or like, like in Israel, at the Wailing Wall, he leads two people to Christ at the Wailing Wall. I mean, give me a break. I can't even get people to talk to me on the airplane, let alone share anything with them. So, by the way, yeah, so anyway. Um, so as a believer, when I became a believer, some changes in my life. And uh, I ended up getting a, a less than stellar fitness report, fitness reports and evaluation that officers get. Now bear in mind, I'd never had anybody ahead of me ever since I was 17 years old. And now uh, I'm a Christian, some lifestyle changes for sure, and not going over to the club every afternoon, pounding down a beer, stuff like that. But I thought, so I said to the Lord in my heart, why? I'm doing so well in my career, all of a sudden I trust you as my Lord and Savior, and look what's happened to me, I'm a dirtbag all of a sudden. <laughs> what's up with that? <clears throat> He brought a verse to my mind. You probably, it's, it's out of Obadiah. You probably, some of you maybe never read Obadiah. It's right after Amos, by the way, which maybe some of us haven't read either. But Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. And the Edomites were oppressing the Israelites from, from a high in caves and stuff like that. And God said, though you soar with the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down. And he brought the Edomites down, and he had to bring me down. 
from a haughty spirit and an inappropriately driven personality. So uh, the, the, the promotion board met uh, shortly thereafter, and one, maybe one in 500 officers gets promoted early ahead of his peers. Very, very rare. Well, the board looked at my record, found this out later, looked at it and said, oh, but I, I need to tell you one other thing. So then we had a couple of accidents in the squadron, and people were killed. And they attributed the accidents to uh, poor leadership of our commanding officer. So he was uh, reprimanded and all that kind of stuff, but he was pretty well known for what had happened, what he'd done. So the, the board meets and says, oh, Patterson, da 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 Whoa, what's this down here? Well, who was his commanding officer? Oh, it's XYZ. Really? Well, a negative report from XYZ is positive in our eyes. Promote him early. So it's promoted early for lieutenant commander. But, and here's the lesson God told me out of, out of, out of Isaiah 55. For your thoughts are not my thoughts. My ways are not your ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, you, you know this verse, don't you? Because you're shaking your head. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts higher than yours and my ways higher than yours. God was saying to me, don't constrain me by your U.S. Navy promotion procedures. I'll do what I want to do when I want to do it. So I was promoted early, but, but, uh, but I, no longer was I driven to be CNO. Now I was driven to try to be a man of God, a decent husband, a better husband, and a better father. So I resigned active duty and went to the, uh, went to the reserves. I get a funny story, I come home. And, you know, if you're, if you're really close to your wife, and this, I'm still a fairly new believer here, so I didn't, Rita always wanted me to consider it. Would you at least consider getting out of the Navy? I said, nope, no way, I'm gonna be CNO. I won't even consider it. Well, once I started thinking about it, I said, I don't dare tell her, because if I, if I, if I tell her I'm considering it, and I don't, then, oh my goodness, it'd be a tough situation. So I came home one night, she was, she had to, she was washing two kids in the, in the bathtub. I said, honey, I've decided to get out of the Navy. What? What are you talking about? How are we going to make a living? What job are you going to get? <laughs> I said, don't worry, I'm staying in the reserves and I can get a job and all that. So. <laughs> now, I want to revisit. Remember Chris, the guy who was in the squadron? Many years later, he was the commanding officer of a big facility down in Orlando, knock TSD, Alan. And I said, Chris, you remember me, Don? Oh, yeah, how's Rita? I said, you know, can we go to lunch? I said, sure. So I went to lunch down in Orlando and said, Chris, the reason I wanted to go to lunch with you is because you were one of several people that God put in my path to bring me to himself, and I wanted to let you know that. I also wanted to recall to you an incident that was real important in my mind, and I re recounted that incident with the, uh, with the beer mug. Listen to this. He didn't even remember the incident. What's the point here? The point is the things that we do that seem insignificant to us can have a huge impact in someone else's life. Huge impact. He didn't even remember the incident. So, you know, it reminded me of Winston Churchill. You know, Chris was a man of, well, he, he wasn't a blabbermouth. He did things. He was professional. It reminded me, Winston Churchill said that, I no longer listen to what men say. I watch what they do because behavior doesn't lie. So, went to reserves. Alan got out. And I served in the Pentagon in the reserves, Navy Command Center, and uh, dealing with real world crises and staff of the Inspector General, dealing with issues of fraud, waste, and abuse, and retired 29 years after entering the Navy. Alan and I started a business in 1986, still involved reserves. Uh, we dealt computer-based training for pilots, Navy and Marine Corps pilots, and interactive electronic tech manuals, some high-tech stuff. And, uh, and so we built a business. Oops, sorry, didn't mean to say that, President Obama. The Lord built a business. Uh, we didn't build it. You know, he used us to build it, but we built a business and sold it. Now, I got one other, one other lesson that I'd like to share with you. This is a good learning lesson for you, and it was, it's been a good learning lesson for me. 
early in the business, running the business early on, um, we were being sued by another company. So I had to fly down to San Antonio and give depositions. You know what depositions are. Had to give depositions. Oh, it went very, very well. And I was just delighted. So the next morning I'm flying out on Southwest Airlines. Back in those days, they didn't have A, B, and C. It was whoever was first there got the best seat. And I like exit row seats because I'm tall. So, so, I, I, so I went there at 4.30 in the morning, sat down there in front of that ticket counter. And, um, you know, I, I had my Bible. I was filled with the Spirit. Deposition gone well. I was reading a book called uh, Moses that, by Chuck Swindoll that somebody gave me. I mean, I was filled with the Spirit down there. It doesn't matter. It was 4.30. Things are going well. So I got on the plane, got my exit row seat, and the flight attendant said, uh, well, we got a problem with a mechanical problem. We got to switch aircraft. I said, oh, that's no problem. I'm filled with spirit. I can switch aircraft. Well, yeah, I'll get an extra row seat, right? She said, no, we're just trying to get people over into that air- aircraft. We're not worried about seating and everything like that. I said, well, maybe you're not worried about seating, but I am. <laughs> she said, sir, 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 just, 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 just go. I said, don't sir, sir, sir me. I've been here since 4.30 to get an exit row seat. She said, sir, there's an exit row seat right over there. Just go ahead and take it. I was ashamed. I was ashamed. I hid that Bible. I didn't want anybody to know I had anything to do with the Lord. That's how fast you can turn from being spirit-filled to being a carnal jerk. Now, I don't have those kind of outbursts anymore, but I still, I still get angry in my heart. You know, you're waiting in line to, you know, with a bunch of cars, and Lane's Virgin, this knucklehead comes up on the right and just passes everybody and goes in. You know, that angers me. You wonder why I'm getting my wallet out. I'm not going to pay you. There's something I'm going <laughs> to share here. The point is, the point is I'm still a sinner. And, but, but anger, here's the thing with anger, and I won't drag this out too much. When, when I get angry, there's one of two reasons. Number one, negative circumstances. Something negative has happened circumstantially. Well, do I believe in a sovereign God or not? If I believe in a sovereign God, He either allows or causes all things to happen that happen. Number two, I am also troubled because my perceived rights are being violated. What rights do we have other than rights from God? You know, oh, no, but I want, I want your righteous anger to come down on this guy coming in here. Well, Don, you're, you're angry with him because you think your rights have been violated. So that's, what I, that's the mental thing I have to go through whenever I'm angry. Is it the circumstances or is it because of my perceived rights? Okay, I'm still a sinner, and I hate to clue all of you, you all are still sinners too. I don't care how long or whether you've trusted Christ your Lord and Savior, whether you've been a Christian for as long as Harry, you're still a sinner. And you've got to be able to acknowledge that. Now what I do is I have accountability card that I developed years ago, and I want to read it to you. This is primarily accountability with another man, but when I don't have another man, I'm accountability with the Lord myself. But you girls could do the same thing differently. One, have I entertained even for a moment any unwholesome thoughts about any woman in the past week? Have I squandered any of God's money? Have I viewed or read any sexually explicit material, including catalogs and newspapers? In hindsight, have I needlessly sacrificed time with God and His Word for some other priority? In hindsight, have I needlessly sacrificed time with my family for some other priority? Have I resisted the prompting of the Spirit in any area? Have I inappropriately deceived, withheld information, or been less than forthcoming with, some, with anyone about anything? And then one I've added that I haven't put on my card, but I've added, uh, you know, over the past few years is, have I done or said anything with the intent of me looking better in men's eyes, with a motivation of looking better in men's eyes? So... I thank you for listening to me. Um, my, my prayer for myself is that I would truly in my heart know for me to live, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. For me to in- incorporate the Ecclesiastes passage that says the day of death is better than the day of your birth. 
for a Christian, that's true. So any of you that some of this might be gibberish to you that I've said, please come talk to me or the pastor or, or Harry. This has become our home church for the few weeks that we're up here uh, each year. We live in Washington, D.C. We come up here a few weeks. It's become our home church. And we really look forward to being under the teaching and preaching of Rob when we come back from time to time. So thank you for listening to me. God bless you all.